Genesis chapter 3, if you remember from last week, we didn't make it through all the message, so we're going to kind of pick up where we left off last week. So as we begin reading in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8, it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden... He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Well, last week I started by telling you about Annie Dillard, who wrote that book, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, and the conflict that she had within herself. She tried to get this more holistic lifestyle where she would kind of return to nature and viewed herself as part of nature, but she saw the violence that was in nature and she was astounded at it. She was shocked by it. As she herself acknowledged, she had a real moral problem with it. And you know what? That's an interesting thing because we often hear about it from the other side. You see, there are uh, people that have a problem with believing in God because of the evil that is in the world, because of the suffering that they see within the world. And the logic usually goes something like this. If God is all good and God is all powerful, then why would he allow this suffering? Because they say if God is all good, then he would put an end to the suffering. If God is all good but not all powerful, then maybe He has the desire to end the suffering but not the ability. Or maybe God's all powerful but not all good, so He has the power but He doesn't have the desire to put an end to the suffering. And so people sometimes look at that as a real dilemma about whether or not they believe in the existence of God. But what they don't often recognize is that the presence of suffering and the presence of evil actually lends proof to the existence of God. And that's what Annie was starting to realize at that point. And I don't know how far, again, that she went in her understanding, but that's the dilemma that she noticed. As she said, if I'm part of nature, and nature's incredibly violent, then how come I have such a moral problem, such a moral issue with this violence? 
some other people have noticed the same thing. I know Timothy Keller in his book, The Reason for God, he said if you're sure that this natural world is unjust and filled with evil, you're assuming the reality of some extra natural or supernatural standard by which to make your judgment. You see the point that he's making? If you say that the natural world is all that there is, then we also are part of that nature. How do we say that it's evil? What are we comparing it to? If nature is all there is, then, then there's nothing outside of it to compare it to. And that's what he's saying. When we make the statement, I cannot believe in God because there is evil in the world, evil compared to what? You see, what you're doing is you're assuming that there's another standard outside of nature, an extra natural, a supernatural, because it has to be outside of nature. Because if nature is what you're calling corrupt, then there has to be something else outside of nature that is the standard that you're comparing it to. In other words, there is a morality because there is a standard that exists outside of nature. Otherwise, you can't say it's evil. That's exactly why C.S. Lewis, in his pilgrimage and coming to faith, he said, my argument against God was that the universe seemed cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just or unjust? What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust. Not simply that it did not happen to please my private fancies. Consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. If I'm saying the world is evil, I must be comparing it to an outside standard. Where does that come from? As one other commentator pointed out, he said, you cannot have utterly wickedness. You can't call anything wicked without a recognition of the existence of God. It's part of the image of God that is within us that recognizes that this world is cruel. This world is violent. This world is broken. And that's exactly what we're studying right now as we look at what broke the world. What broke nature? And we began to look at it last week. We pointed out that there's three different results of the fall that we found within this passage. The first one, the first one is the consequences of sin, and that was when Adam and Eve, instantly upon uh, eating the fruit, bringing sin into the world, they began to hide. They began to cover up because of the shame and the guilt that they felt. They also began to blame and pass the buck. The second one was the curse on sin. With the serpent, he pronounced the curse. With Eve, he pronounced the curse. With Adam, he pronounced the curse. And we recognize that that curse is wide. That curse is very broad. It impacts all of nature. The Bible tells us that nature itself is groaning. The creation is groaning, waiting for the redemption of the sons of God. All the things that we experience in the negative light, the things that are like natural disasters, like hurricanes and tornadoes, the the things like uh, pestilences and famines, the things like diseases like cancer and birth defects, all these things that happen are the groaning of nature as we participate and we live within this world. And that doesn't even get to the point where we've got to look at the evil not just on the outside, the suffering on the outside, but the evil from within mankind. But then lastly, we were just coming to the point where we were considering the promise of redemption. This passage is flooded with the points to the cross. Flooded with the promise of redemption. Well, as we consider this promise of redemption today, notice first of all, we see it in the proclamation. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it because we touched on it a little bit last week, but what does God proclaim? 
God proclaims that there's going to be this enmity between the serpent, the seed of the serpent, and the seed of the woman, and that the, the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. So God will proclaim that through the seed of the woman, through the virgin-born Son of God, Jesus Christ, that he would bring victory over Satan. We see the first glimpse of it. I think we even see a better picture in the provision. And by the provision, what I'm talking about is not just God proclaiming what He's going to do down the road through the Messiah, but He he gives us a picture of it. By this, I'm talking about Him providing clothing for Adam and Eve. He provides clothing for them. Because notice what happens. They sin and they recognize their nakedness. And the first thing that they do is they try to cover up. They go into the trees to try to hide from God. They make clothes out of fig leaves to try to hide from one another to start to cover their guilt and their shame. But it's not good enough. You know, everybody knows that if you put on a fig leaf, you got a couple of days maybe. And that thing's going to dry out and crumble up. And you're going to have to need more fig leaves. And so it's not appropriate. It doesn't work. And God knows that. And you know what He does? He comes and He provides for them clothing made out of skins that is more permanent. Let's consider about four different things in regards to this covering that God provides for them. First thing we see about this covering is it was provided for them. God did the work. You see, the fig leaves, they took and tried to cover themselves with their fig leaves. And just like the verse that we looked at for just a brief time last week in Isaiah chapter 64, says, all our works of righteousness are like filthy rags. Like a leaf, they wither and crumble away. Adam and Eve, they tried to cover their own guilt. They tried to cover their own shame. But it was not appropriate. God had to cover their shame for them. He had to take care of it. That's what we find in the Gospel. You know what? We still do the same thing. We try to excuse our shame. We try to excuse our guilt. We try to deny it. We say, oh, that thing isn't really wrong. We're going to redefine morality, redefine values. We also try to just do other good things to kind of make up for it. I remember watching one of the Christmas shows that I like to watch, some of the Home Alone movies. In the second Home Alone where Kevin's lost in New York, he meets this lady that feeds the pigeons and stuff all the time. He's having a little bit of a dilemma about how he treats his family. And she tells him, well, don't you know a good deed erases a bad one? Just go do a good deed. doesn't work. That's the whole point of this part of the passage. Adam and Eve tried to cover up. They tried to hide their guilt and their shame. In our own actions, we cannot do it. God gave them the Ten Commandments. Moses went up on the hill to get them from God. Before he even came down the hill from God, they were already breaking the commandments in the camp. We can't do it. We can't keep it. That's exactly why Jesus Christ came. He didn't come just to be a good example to show us how to live. He is a good example, and we should learn from Him. But He came to be a Redeemer. He came to be that once-for-all sacrifice for our sins. He came to do it for us because we could not do it ourselves. Faith in God is about getting to the point where we recognize we cannot accomplish it and we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ who did. So we see that God did the work, not us. Secondly, we see it was a substitution because this isn't just a fig leaf. This is an animal. You pluck a fig leaf off a tree, the tree keeps right on it growing, produces more leaves. You take the skin off an animal, it's done. Death. That's the reason that Adam and Eve got to keep on living. Because remember what God told them, the day you eat of that tree, you will die. And they would have, except for one thing. God allowed this innocent animal to die so that he would be the covering for their guilt. That's a substitution there. Death happened that day. It just wasn't Adam and Eve's death. They experienced a spiritual death that we mentioned last week, but not a physical death. They would eventually, but for now, God would have mercy and accept the 
sacrifice of this animal's life in place of their own. Not only is it a substitution, it required death. It had to be death. You know, the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. We're under the death penalty. Sin brings death. And so when Christ died on that cross, He was the substitution. His death, His life would pay for ours. And then lastly, it is responded to in faith. And for this, I would would point you to Eve. I always wondered about this part of the passage. I thought, what a weird time to be naming Eve. Back when we were talking about the relationship that Adam had with Eve, it made more sense to me. Because I remember that's when he called her woman. And we talked about how that identified her with him. And he was saying, she's me. She's part of me. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. But now, in the midst of all this judgment on sin, now she gets named another name, her personal name, Eve. Why? Because she's the mother of all living. Well, at the point that she's given this name, she doesn't have any kids. There are no more living except for Adam and Eve. Think with me through this now. If Adam and Eve are the only ones alive, there are no others. They just ate the fruit that God told them, the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. Then what are their prospects? None. But here we see a statement that she shall be called Eve because she's the mother of all living. In other words, this wasn't going to be the end. There was a whole bunch of life that is still going to come from this. She's going to bear children and she's going to have a family. It's not going to end right now in death. Why isn't it going to end right now in death? Because of the promise of redemption. Because God had mercy, offered His Son as a substitutionary sacrifice to pay that death penalty. And so now we see a response of Adam and Eve. And the response is one of faith as they recognize that even though we're at this point and we have this guilt and we deserve death, God sacrificed something else in our place and we're going to go on living and we're going to have a family and it means life. We see this provision, the way that God provided for them, how it points to this redemption that He's promising. So He's proclaimed it. He's given us a little proclamation about what's going to happen with, with the Son of God crushing the head of the serpent. We've, we've seen God provide for this redemption for them and as they have the substitutionary sacrifice. And then lastly, the parallels through this passage with the redemption that we have in Christ are astounding. And what we're seeing as we go down through the passage and we compare that to the parallels that we find in the life of Christ, we see that Jesus fulfills the curse. All these things that God pronounced as a curse on the serpent, on Eve, on Adam, on the ground, it's all going to be undone in Jesus Christ. Notice with me, what was the first part of Eve's curse? You're going to have pain in childbearing. Pain, suffering. And what does the Bible tell us about Jesus Christ? What did He do? He came and He suffered on our behalf. The pain that women have been experiencing through childbearing, and that's just the tip of the iceberg, the pain that we've all been experiencing through our lives, down through the ages, Jesus stepped into our life and experienced that pain and suffering on our behalf. In fact, in First Peter, it even puts it that way. It says in chapter 3, verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. He came and He suffered for us so that He could bring us to God. That's part of the curse, that pain and that suffering. Jesus takes that upon Himself. Well, not only do we see that, but we also see Jesus as the bridegroom. What was the next thing that was told to Eve? That she was going to want to dominate Adam and that Adam was going to dominate her. A relationship that started out in, in unity and intimacy ends up in one being described by domination. 
There's disharmony, dysfunction within the marriage relationship. But you know what we see in Christ? If you flip to the book of Revelation back toward the back of it, you find when we all get to go be with Christ in the new heaven and the new earth, and you know what? There's a big celebration that happens, and it's called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. If you look back at the earlier teachings of Christ, while He was on this earth, some of His parables talked about weddings and all these people being invited to the wedding and so many people refusing to come, but then others deciding to come. All these parables that involved weddings. And Jesus' first miracle was turning water into wine at a wedding. But I always thought it was weird that Mary comes up to Him at that and says, they're out of wine. And Jesus is saying, it's not my time yet. And then He turns around and turns the water into wine. I thought, why does, he, why does he tell her it's not his time yet? And then turn, still turn the water into wine. I don't, I, don't, I don't get it. Recently, I think I came across the answer. When he said it's not his time yet, he was looking toward his wedding. This isn't my wedding. I'm not the one providing the wine for this. It's not my time yet. In Ephesians chapter 5, where we get so much of our good advice for marriage and our relationships between a man and a wife, he tells us about how a man ought to be like Christ, who loved the church and gave himself for her. We will not to be like the church who submits to Christ. And in the end of that, he says, I'm telling you a mystery, but what I'm really talking about is Christ and the church. So he was saying, this is how we should act, but my main point really is Christ and the church. When we recognize that He is the bridegroom, and that we are the bride, and then we follow suit, and, and, we, and we receive what He has accomplished for us, and then follow Him in His example, we have our marriage relationships healed and restored. And, and we have that closeness and that unity and that intimacy that can come from that. But you see, He's that bridegroom. And so even that part of the relationship that breaks down between Adam and Eve, Jesus Christ fulfills that through His death and His resurrection. We also see that Jesus sweat drops of blood. Now we move on to Adam's curse. And what does it say about Adam? Adam is told, now you're going to sweat. Right before work was, well, we, we probably wouldn't call it work. I don't know what we would have called it. But it wasn't hard. He had tasks to do. They had responsibility to fulfill. But there was no weeds. There was no thistles. There was no, the ground grew everything very easily. It was not difficult. Now God says, by the sweat of your brow, you're going to eat the bread of the land. And what do we see in Jesus? We see when Jesus is headed to the cross, He goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. Another garden. And He goes there and He's going to spend some time with the Father. And the Bible says that His his soul was deeply in anguish. And what did He do? He sweat drops of blood. What is He doing? He's overcoming the curse. He's and We've been working by the sweat of our brow ever since that day. Jesus Christ came to sweat on our behalf. And he sweat, not just sweat, but he sweat drops of blood, which the doctors tell us comes from intense anxiety. New Testament scholar Bill Lane put it this way. He said, Jesus came to be with the Father for an interlude before his betrayal, but found hell rather than heaven open before him, and he staggered. The intensity of what he went through as he sweat drops of blood on our behalf. We also see that Jesus was mocked with a crown of thorns. Adam was also told, now your plants are going to have thorns. They're going to have thorns and thistles is going to be produced by the ground. And when Jesus is going to that cross for us, what do they do? They take and they make a crown. They're going to mock Him. You're King of the Jews? And then they put that on His head and then they drive it down into His head with a stick. So part of His mockery comes from the very thorns that are there because of the curse. He's bearing the curse on our behalf. Adam was also told, you're going to return to dust. And what do we find Christ doing? Christ died, as it says in 1 Corinthians 15.22, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. 
So He died on our behalf. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, it says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So He experienced death for us as well. All these things are elements of the curse. And then also we see Jesus experience separation from God. Because that's what happens to man, Adam and Eve, after they hear everything that's involved in the curse. They get kicked out of the garden. They get kicked out of the very presence of God. And we read in Matthew chapter 27, and verse 46, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those are not empty words. I think Jesus was shocked. He knew a lot of what He would experience when He went to that cross on our behalf. And I am certain this is by far the most painful part. But He is shocked by the abandonment of the Father. My God, why have You forsaken Me? You know why? Because we were forsaken. Because we were, we were kicked out of the garden. Rightly so, because of our sin. Kicked out of the presence of God. Kicked out of the fellowship with God. In order to overcome the curse, Jesus Christ is forsaken by the Father. He's abandoned. As Christ bears all the sin of us upon Himself, the Holy God has to turn His back and allow His Son to bear it all by Himself. You know, when we feel forsaken, abandoned, Christ was experiencing that on our behalf. Lastly, he says, he was hung on a tree. I find it interesting. When we look back in the garden, what did Adam and Eve do? They go in and try to find hiding among the trees. But Christ is hung on one. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, he quotes from Deuteronomy here, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. You see what you see what Jesus was doing as, as he went through experiences, all these things that he experienced on the way to the cross. He's fulfilling all the curse. He's undoing the curse. So when we get to that time period that is described in Revelation chapter twenty one and verse four, where it says he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. You see, all those things, the elements of the curse, are all going to be done with. That's all going to be in the past. It's all going to be passed away, gone. And we're going to have this new life in Christ, in this new heavens and this new earth, with the curse being completely taken out of the picture. Not because God could forget about it, but because He overcame it. And He overcame it in the person of Jesus Christ. We got a glimpse of that. You know when we got a glimpse of that is when Jesus was here on the earth. Think about this with me. What were Jesus' miracles? Jesus' miracles happened for three, three reasons that I can think of. One, because He loved people. He loved people, so if He saw somebody that was blind, He didn't want them to be blind, so He healed them. So He loved people. That's one of the reasons for His miracles. The Bible tells us very clearly that another reason, and, probably, and actually the more prominent reason for His miracles was they were assigned. The Gospel of John calls him a sign all the time. Every time Jesus did a miracle, the Father is declaring, this is my Son. Because normal people can't do that kind of stuff. That's the Son of God doing that, walking on the water, calming storms, feeding over 5,000 people with one boy's lunch, all these different things. But you know what? There's one more thing that was happening. 
Because Jesus told the disciples, even when he gave them the ability to do these miraculous things, he told them, go around to the villages and preach and teach the kingdom of God. You know what we were given? We were given a glimpse of God's kingdom. This is what God's kingdom is like. And the Jewish people were offered it. Here's the kingdom. Accept the king, you get the kingdom. Nope, they didn't take it. But what did God's kingdom look like when we think about the things that Jesus did? Well, God's kingdom looks like no hunger because he can turn water into wine. He can take one boy's lunch and feed 5,000 people. He can take a small amount of food, feed another 4,000 people. And actually, that just counted the men, so it's probably more like 15,000 people. You can solve the world's hunger problem if you can do that kind of stuff. That's what God's kingdom would be like. We get a glimpse of it in Jesus. Not only that, but we see no sickness because he healed people that were sick. Even people that had leprosy and that were separated and isolated from their communities. He healed them and allowed them to go home. Not only that, but there's no death. We see that when he raised Lazarus from the dead. He raised another little girl from the dead. So no death in his kingdom. This would be a kingdom of no blindness as Bartimaeus was healed from his blindness as well as others. There's going to be no disabilities as we think of the paralytic that was lowered down in front of him by his friends and then told to take your mat so that you were lowered down through the roof with and pick it up and carry it home yourself. And he did. And we know other people. The guy sitting by the pool and Jesus says, don't you want to be healed? And he says, yeah, I can never make it to the pool in time to get healed when it's time to be healed. And Jesus heals him. So there would be no disabilities. No demonic activity. As he cast out demons. We just learned at Club Jam this week with the kids about a time when Jesus cast out a demon that was called Legion because there were so many within this one person. Jesus says, no demonic activity. He casts them out. When the king shows up, calming of the storm. No more hurricanes, tornadoes, natural disasters, earthquakes. That will all be taken care of. Jesus could calm the storm. He could, he could walk on the water. No more groaning of creation. Realize that the miracles Jesus was doing, he was offering them the kingdom. He's saying, look, do you want a kingdom where there's no hunger? Do you want a kingdom where there's no sickness and no blindness and no death? Do you want a kingdom where everybody's well fed and there's no disabilities and there's no demonic activity? Do you want a kingdom like that? And you know what happened? We killed them. We killed them. Emptying out the hospital beds, raising people out of the graves. You just can't have a guy around like that. The guy out handing out free food and stuff like that, that guy's a menace, needs to be taken care of. Killed him. The glimpse of that kind of life, and they got rid of him. It's astounding. And we're still doing it today. We're still doing it today. We, we, we see the glimpse. We weren't there, but we get to see firsthand eyewitness testimonies of it. We see the glimpse of the kingdom. In fact, we see it in a more concise package than any of them did. And people are still walking away from it. People are still not believing. People are still not following. People are still leaving him to go to the cross. The redemption is so full in this passage. We see the redemption of Jesus Christ. We see it in the proclamation of what he would do to that serpent. That he would overcome. Gain victory over that serpent. We see that the redemption that God has given to us through the provision of the clothing, the covering over Adam and Eve, where that substitute died in the place so that they got to continue to live and life overcame because of the mercy of God. And we see the redemption through the parallels between what Jesus Christ, His ministry and His life and, what he, and His death and what He came to do for us. He answered all the things that were spelled out in the curse that was brought upon Adam and Eve. 
And so as we look at the fall of man, what do we see? We see that we can understand the world in which we live. We understand why there's, why there's tornadoes and why there's cancers, why there's pestilences and famines. Nature's broken. But we also know why. We recognize that nature's broken instead of just being a part of it. Because of the image of God that is within us. And it's because of that image that God has promised this redemption and made it so clear and so plain.